Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you have joined us. We want to spend the hour today talking about our criminal justice system and the idea of criminal justice reform. Are there better ways that we can be dealing with crime and the people who commit them? Are there better ways to keep ourselves safe, but also not destroy the lives of people who have made mistakes. We're going to want to hear from you throughout the hour what you think about the idea of lengthy prison terms, lifelong prison terms for people that happen all the time uh, in our state and others in the union. Uh, are, there, are, are there things that we should be thinking of that could change the way we deal with that? As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put your comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we will work you into the conversation. And I want to start this conversation here with someone I am really excited to have in the studio with me. When he was 18, Daryl Woods was charged with first-degree murder after a shooting that left a man dead at a drug house in Detroit. Daryl spent 29 years in prison where he became a minister, he chaired the NAACP prison program, and led thousands of youth and prisoners through his Restart Youth Deterrent program. I met Daryl many years ago as a lifer who was trying to make good use of his time behind bars. I knew how dedicated he was to that cause. I knew how much he cared about people on the outside, especially kids whom Daryl feared would end up where he was. But I have to be honest, I never ever thought I would get to know Daryl Woods outside the prison walls. He would always be inside. He would always be incarcerated for life. But then last year, as Governor Rick Snyder prepared to leave office, the impossible happened. Snyder granted Woods a commutation. And so Daryl walked out of prison earlier this year and into a life of freedom he has never known as an adult. Now he's trying to put his life back together. He's trying to get work, find home, reconnect with family, and build the support systems that most of us take for granted. I saw him a few weeks ago for the first time outside of prison and thought just for a minute what that must feel like for him. The newness of everything. The difficulties that will attend even the most basic efforts to build a life. But all Daryl could talk about was how thankful he was to be out. How much he was looking forward to life unshackled for the first time in three decades. Daryl Woods now joins me to talk about his very long journey. Daryl, welcome to the studio. Good morning, Steve. Yeah. Uh, it's good to be here. Good seeing you in yeah. this studio yeah. live. Second time that we are seeing each other not inside of a prison Absolutely. in our entire lives, right? Um, I, I want to start with you talking about what the last, I guess, 60-some days have been like. When I saw you... A few weeks ago, you told me you had been out of prison for 60 days. And, and that just that idea spun my head, the idea of that first 60 days and what that must feel like and what you must be doing. But give the listeners a sense of what that was like February 12th, 2019, when you walked out of prison for the first time as an adult, as a free man. What a powerful miracle uh, it was, uh, February 12th. Uh, 2019, the day I walked out of prison. Um, I walked into the lobby 
and I was greeted by my son, who was one year old when I was incarcerated. He's now 30 years old. Wow. We embraced each other and wept in each other's arms like we both were babies. Uh, it was a powerful, powerful, powerful moment, a moment that I would never forget in my life to be reconnected with my child, the one who I had the one I have abandoned, the one that I was incarcerated all of his life, to be able to be received by him was a powerful day. And as we embraced each other and wept, uh, we were greeted outside by families and friends uh, and well-wishers, uh, which was very powerful. My family was very excited. Uh, they never thought, uh, many of them didn't, many of them did, because they are people of faith, that I would never walk out. And uh, to be able to see uh, my family and to be able to uh, embrace them and see them beam up the way they did uh, was so surreal. And um, we went immediately uh, after we embraced and wept and and laughed and we got into the car and went downtown. They took me downtown to the Hudson Cafe. And um, as we got out the car, um, my son and my daughter-in-law, we uh, began to cross the streets. I, we attempted to cross the street, but I felt like a child then mm. uh, because I was uh, afraid to disobey any of the laws in terms of jaywalking and anything of that nature. So I was very conscious and aware uh, that I needed to be careful. And so I almost, I did tell my son, I probably need you to hold my hand to walk across the street. Oh my gosh. Uh, and so we went into the Hudson Cafe and uh, we enjoyed family and we fellowship and had a good time. And after doing that, um, uh, I took a break and uh, went down to the Chance for Life office. I went to the Chance for Life office, reconnected with the organization um, and um, reintroduced myself to the organization as a person, as a free man, mm. because I did uh, programming for Chance for Life on the inside. In the inside, right, I remember that. Absolutely. And then I also was able to leave there, go to the Flip the Script office and greet Mr. Keith Bennett uh, uh, to reconnect with him and greet him. Uh, very warm welcomes, uh, very uh, a lot of love and support. Uh, then later on that evening, I went uh, with my family and we enjoyed time. I seen my grandson for the first time. My grandson is uh, four years old. Mm. I never wanted my grandson to step foot in the prison. So I had never physically seen him. My children grew up uh, all of their lives. My daughter, Tiffany, who is 29 years old. My son, Daryl Jr., uh, who is 30 years old. Uh, and they uh, grew up with me uh, in prison and having to be sh shaken down by officers and uh, having their privacy invaded uh, because of the poor choices I made. And I intentionally didn't want my grandson to ever step foot in prison to be able to be handled that way. And so I saw my grandson for the first time and it was so amazing. It was so beautiful, it was a beautiful moment uh, and I, I had faith that that day would come, just didn't know when it would come. 
I didn't know if, if I would be 60 years old. I didn't know if I'd be 70 years old. I didn't know. But I knew one day I'll be able to see my grandson, and I was able to see him, and it was very amazing. Uh, so <laughs> since then, the the day after I got out, I went to uh, at the behest of Judge Frank Shamaski to go to Harper Woods High School uh, to speak to a group of youth uh, there. Uh, they was holding teen court there, and it was a very amazing experience there. Uh, I was able to uh, connect with those young people in a powerful way, but what alarmed me there, Steve, was that the young people there, uh, when the judge was talking and they had two assistant Wayne County prosecutors there talking, um, they were engaged somewhat, but when the judge introduced me as a person who was incarcerated and who had been in prison for 29 years, it's like the young people's eyes beamed up. Mm. And that moved me. Uh, and I would never forget that day, Steve, because I said, these young people look at me as the hero. Yeah. yeah. And I said, we have to do everything that we can to dispel that myth that it's a badge of honor uh, to be a prisoner or to be someone who's in the criminal lifestyle. I said, we have work to do. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so, one of the things that I- I've always really appreciated about you is that idea that you expressed about knowing that one day you would get out of prison, um, that that you just always believed that would happen. At the same time, you had a life sentence. Uh, and as I said, you know, even as I got to know you over the years, I always figured I would never see you outside of prison. I, I, I didn't have that kind of faith. I didn't have that kind of hope. Can you talk about how and why uh, that is how you were able to see it, uh, that that you were able to maintain that idea that you would get out? First and first, almost, I had two strong praying grandmothers uh, who sowed seeds of faith in my life uh, throughout my young years. Uh, And so when I got incarcerated, I made a conscious decision to uh, step away from the negativity. And um, I had an experience in there with God, first and foremost. And I was able to study the word. I was able to study books and I was able to study freedom fighters. Uh, Of course, uh, Nelson Mandela, Long Walk to Freedom, I definitely related to (laughs) Uh, so I had a strong, uh, uh, church family at greater grace temple under the leadership, uh, before my incarceration of Bishop David Ellis and now under the leadership of Bishop Charles Ellis. And that, uh, church family was remarkable in my life and they, uh, encouraged me. They prayed with me. And so as a man of faith, I, I look beyond my situation and circumstances and uh, develop that I can and I will and I must attitude. Um, I, wouldn't, I was not going to allow uh, my life to be sucked up by a system. And so I had a strong faith. And I believe God for the impossible and I fought the good fight. But, you know, faith without works is dead. Mm. And so I decided to put the work in as well. Uh, let's go back to 
that time when you're an 18-year-old young man here in Detroit. And give us a sense of what brought you to uh, the trouble that sent you to prison. Uh, do you remember much about what was going on in your life at that time? Oh, absolutely. I was a confused young man, uh, uh, a wayward teen. I was 18 years old in one month, uh, just turned 18. I associated myself with the wrong crowds. Uh, I had ran away from home early on in my teen years because uh, I was going to look for my mother in the cast quarters hmm. uh, because my mother at that time was addicted to heroin. And I grew up primarily by my grandmother and uh, I dropped out of school in the eighth grade. I began to uh, sell drugs uh, for a drug organization at that time. And uh, at that time, they exploited young teenagers at that time. And um, I found myself uh, uh, venturing down that road of destruction. Um, However, uh, I knew uh, within myself that uh, this, this wasn't the lifestyle that I supposed to have been living. These are not the people I supposed to have associated myself with. But I had no mentors. I had uh, no sense of purpose or direction or, or identity. And so in the midst of me uh, selling drugs and uh, living a lawless life, I became a teen father. I had my first child uh, when I was 16 years old, had my daughter when I was 17, and then, of course, 18, I uh, I was incarcerated. But on the day I was incarcerated, I was, I was in a situation where multiple people was in a home. Uh, an argument transpired with someone else. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the midst of that argument, um, someone was shot and killed by someone else. I wasn't a part of a plan, but because I was in that home, and I was associated with the drugs that were being transacted at that time. I was buying marijuana at the time and other drugs was being transacted at that time. Um, uh, I was uh, convicted as an aiding and a better uh, in a homicide. And me and my co-defendant was. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and uh, we did a lifetime in prison for that. Mm-hmm. And that's why I tell young people right now, you don't have to pull a trigger. You don't have to uh, actually commit the actual crime, um, it's, you can be guilty by association. Uh, and uh, so that's why we have to warn our children by, about the people that they hang out with and the things that they are participating in. Yeah, yeah. My guest is Daryl Woods, uh, a friend of mine who spent 29 years in prison for aiding and abetting in a homicide before Governor Rick Snyder commuted his sentence Late last year, we are talking this hour about the criminal justice system and whether we need to rethink the way we deal with people who make criminal mistakes. Uh, Does it make sense to send one somebody to prison for 30 years? Does it make sense to send someone to prison for life? Or are there better ways for us to think about how to respond to crimes? Uh, We want to hear from you this hour what you think about lifelong sentences, multi-decade sentences, and whether we're getting that right or wrong in the criminal justice system. As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll try to work you into 
the conversation. Daryl, uh, you and I got to know each other as you were doing um, things to try to reach outside of the prison walls and reach to young people uh, and others to try to sort of send that message of don't be like me, don't make these mistakes. But I always wondered, um, I wondered what you thought about the way in which you were punished. I, I, I wondered what you thought about the sentence you got and whether you felt like it was fair. Was it fair um, for, for what happened that day when you were 18? And was it fair because you were 18? I mean, because you were just becoming an adult. Did it make sense to sentence you to life in prison? Um, of course not. Uh, I definitely felt that there was a great injustice that occurred uh, to me. Uh, that's not to minimize the loss of life. I definitely pray for the family that was lost. Uh, and, I, and I feel that uh, justice should be served and should have been served on behalf of the family. Um, but however, I was 18 years in one month. I was one month shy of being under the juvenile lifer law. Um, uh, and so. Right. If you had been a month younger, they could have they would have sentenced you under that juvenile lifer law. Absolutely. Yeah. I would have been resentenced under that law. Um, however, uh, the uh, and as as an aiding and a better. I'm in that situation, really don't know what the next person is going to do. It was a terrible situation. It's about seven or eight people in this home. I don't know how I ha could have controlled uh, the situation, you know, and to condemn me to life without the possibility of parole and say that I have to die in prison when I didn't have a clue uh, that someone was going to be shot or killed that day. You know, and I think that was a great, great injustice. And I think they need to rethink the aiding and abetting laws. Mm -hmm. I think they need to rethink uh, uh, how they treat 18-year-olds behind bars. Uh, I, I think that uh, the science prove out, if you look at the case in Miller versus Alabama, uh, you will see that the expert who testified uh, in that particular case has now said, said that maybe you need to extend the cases to 21 year olds mm. uh, to give them consideration when you look at the brain science. Yes. Uh, so uh, certainly I think they need to rethink this. Yeah. Uh, the time that you spent in prison, I mean, you made very good use of it, as I said in the intro, and you did a lot of things uh, that, that suggested that, um, you know, there's power in, in the idea of putting people who are in prison uh, to, to to good use outside of the prison. I mean, I think you're you're one of the the best examples of that. But I wonder what you make of the other time that you spent in prison. The prison, the time that you weren't doing the things that I came to know you for. Did it feel as though there was any um, any sense of purpose for your life behind what was going on there? In other words, were they preparing you for anything? that, uh, you know, the, the, the day that you might get a commutation from the governor or the parole board and walk out of those walls, what was that time like? And did you feel like uh, maybe there was a, a missed opportunity to deal with people who were in prison differently? Oh, absolutely. Uh, the Early on in my incarceration, I had 
a, a, a spiritual transformation. And so as I left the negative crowd inside on the inside in which and there is a negative crowd on the inside of course there's drugs in prison you 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 read the uh news articles Mm -hmm. there's drugs there's crime there's violence uh there's a lot of negativity there i went as an eighth grade dropout steve uh and i had to get my gd um thank god i had mentors and people to come to me in prison, but the system need to needs a, a, a overhaul. They need to enhance the quality of their educational system. Uh, they need programs like Chance for Life and Flip the Script to take the lead on reentry uh, because uh, they, they putting it, sometimes putting a band aid on cancer. Um, that's why we see sometimes a revolving door. Mm. Uh, I literally was at a facility and watch people come back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, because there was, was not a strong enough plan in place to be able to uh, minister to the needs of people. And it's, of course, it's not a one size fit all. I can't just put you in this one, one program and think that this program is going to uh, work for you. Uh, I need to tailor make uh, programming to the individual needs. Mm. And so I definitely been uh, thinking about a lot of things and reflecting on a lot of things and have uh, uh, put together some plans as well. Uh, and I think that we need to be at the table uh, to be able to make some serious reform so that we can have a stronger impact in the lives of the people who are coming out and that indeed would turn out to have a strong impact for the community. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to add another voice to this conversation. Dr. Ruth Wilson Gilmore is an activist for prison abolition who's been advocating for change for decades. She was recently covered in a long story in the New York Times. She'll join this conversation with Daryl Woods, who we're going to keep. Also, tune in tomorrow. Medical researchers have revived some functions in the brains of dead pigs, and they've successfully 3D printed a heart made from actual human tissue. We're going to talk with a medical ethicist about the deeper implications of these medical advancements. Stay with us on Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks very much for tuning in. Why do we send people to prison? Is it to punish them, or is it to rehabilitate? Or is it just something that has become a reflexive answer to crime, something we do without thinking much about its purpose? But what if we thought more about it? And what if we got rid of the notion of incarceration altogether? came up with other ways to respond when someone breaks the law. My next guest is Dr. Ruth Wilson-Gilmore. She is a longtime advocate for the idea of prison abolition. Yes, she says we do not need prisons to keep ourselves safer. And we will break the bonds with our barbarous ancestors when we come up with more humane ways to prevent and to punish those who break the law. 
Her ideas were spotlighted in a recent piece in the New York Times, and she joins us now to talk about it and her work. Dr. Gilmore, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning. It's very nice to be on the show. Yes, it's great to have you here. And, of course, we still have with us Daryl Woods, uh, a friend of mine who spent 29 years in prison for aiding and abetting a homicide before Governor Rick Snyder commuted his sentence late last year. Uh, Dr. Gilmore, uh, let's start with the central premise of your work, the idea that we could abolish incarceration. Now, that's a radical idea for a lot of people. Tell me why you think it's something we ought to be talking about. I think that abolition is something we ought to be talking about because we ought to be as ambitious as possible in considering what kind of society we want to live in. So do we want to have a society that reacts after the fact of harm and punishes more and more severely, which is what has happened in the United States over the past 40 years? Or would we prefer to have a society in which the chances of harm themselves are minimized and then people who do resort to harmful behavior have to become accountable to entire communities rather than languish in a cage because of what wrong they've done. And when we talk about criminal justice reform in this country, this this subject almost never enters the conversation, right? We, we're talking about tinkering with uh, prison systems as we have them sort of constructed now. But one of the things I thought was really interesting in the piece uh, that you were featured in in the New York Times uh, is is that if, if you go back uh, in history uh, before even the history of the United States and look at sort of the evolution of responses to crime, there is kind of a march toward this idea of abolition. In other words, uh, over time, we have accepted the idea that prison doesn't have to be as harsh as it is uh, today. It doesn't have to be uh, this brutal uh, system that it was uh, 100 or 200 years ago, that, that, that we are kind of marching toward the idea that there might be a better way. I, I wonder what you make of the the, the sort of time, right? The, the, the time of of now and whether this this time is ripe for this conversation? Well, I think the fact that the New York Times, the newspaper of record, as it calls <laughs> itself, um, published a big story about abolition using my story as a narrative arc for their story shows the time is ripe. Um, many people over many decades have been trying to get people to think about prison as a center for our understanding of what has gone wrong with our society as a whole, hmm. rather than to think about prison as a normal response to something called crime. So, yes, the time is right. The time is right because there are, at the moment, while we speak, about 2.3 million people locked up. The time is right because, as we speak, there are at least, at least 
70 million people, that's seven zero million people, including your friend who I know is on the line, Mm -hmm. who are barred from certain kinds of employment because of arrest through conviction records. That's half of the U.S. workforce. Mm -hmm. So we have to think differently about how we think both about harm, but also about the entire structure of our society. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. I have two guests, and we're talking about criminal justice reform. Uh, Daryl Woods spent 29 years in prison for aiding and abetting a homicide before Governor Rick Snyder commuted his sentence late last year. He is out of prison and for the first time as an adult trying to figure out what life can be like, what opportunities there might be for him. We also have Dr. Ruth Wilson-Gilmore with us. She's an earth and environmental sciences professor at the Graduate Center at the City University of New York. She has spent three decades advocating for prison abolition. That's right. She says we should get rid of the idea of locking people up when they commit crimes or make mistakes. Uh, She is trying to help transform the way we think and talk about criminal justice here in the United States. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Tell us what you think of the idea of prison abolition. Are there better ways for us to respond to crime? Are there ways that would make us all feel safer, perhaps, than we do right now? Are there ways that would uh, prepare people who have made mistakes and committed crimes better for life when they come out of prison? Think about the number of people uh, who go to prison and then have to rejoin society. Is prison the best way to prepare them for that life? As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, Daryl, I want to talk uh, with you a little bit now about what lies ahead, this idea of a new life for you after almost three decades behind bars, you're 60 some days in, what is it that, uh, that you're shooting for and what's sort of coming together in front of you? Um, I'm so blessed and grateful to have uh, wonderful people around me. Um, thankful to uh, Bishop Charles Ellis uh, who put on a um, prayer breakfast for me uh, early uh, last uh, month mm-hmm. um, to be able to raise uh, resources for housing, um, raise a substantial amount and still raising monies to be able to make sure that I have housing for a year. Uh, uh, so I'm very grateful for that support. I'm also uh, grateful to the many mentors that I have uh, to be able to sit down and strategize uh, how I can be effectively used out here. My goal is to make sure that none of our young people ever go back, go to prison, and as well as to make sure that re- other returning citizens never go back. Uh, so uh, what I'm doing now, um, I'm going around the community, meeting uh, with community leaders, uh, being able to develop a plan. I'm, I want to make sure that the youth deterrent program on the outside is developed and so that we can have an impact with young people. Ironically, I got a call from the Wayne County, one of the assistant Wayne County prosecutors to 
asked me to go speak at East English Village uh, High School. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I'll be doing that tomorrow. I spoke at two school, other schools. Thankful to Wayne State, I had the opportunity to speak uh, at one of the criminal justice classes there, and they also uh, compensated me to speak at another event for them. And I have been ministering in uh, different churches. Uh, the first Sunday I was out, I ministered uh, both services at Greater Grace Temple. I had the <laughs> opportunity to stand in the pulpit of Hartford Memorial Baptist oh, Church of wow. Dr. Charles Adams, yeah, yeah. both services. And so I'm speaking and I'm, I'm looking to receive uh, uh, insight and direction in terms of how to establish a 501c3 uh, to be able to uh, take my uh, organization uh, further out here and have an impact uh, in the lives of our young people. I'm developing a book. Uh, me and my son is working on one together and also I'm working on my uh, memoirs as well. I think there is some, uh, it's, it's an interesting story there. Um, so I'm doing a lot uh, right now. Uh, I, when I leave here, finishing with you, I'll be meeting with the ACLU. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll be uh, going to the NAACP uh, later on today. Again, I've been there since I've been out. Um, I made sure that my dues were paid up because I was a dues paying member on the inside. <laughs> uh, so I want to be definitely engaged with this community. I want to be a part of the life-saving work. Uh, I want to be able to help do everything I can to dispel the myth to our young people that it's a badge of honor to go to prison. We have to dispel that myth yeah. uh, because right now we it won't be a reality to be an abolitionist if our young people continue down the trend that they are going uh, down. Uh, and so we need to give them some hope. We need to give them some opportunity and we need to be fully engaged in working together as a community to save our children's lives. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'll be doing in the coming days. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Gilmore, uh, when, when you listen to someone like Daryl talk about what he's up to uh, now that he's out of prison, uh, I, I wonder what you make of what so many others are left to. I mean, Daryl's a really great example of the you know the the potential upside of of somebody taking what happened to them and turning it into something really positive uh unfortunately that's just not that's not what we see with so many other folks who uh, are in the same situation that is so true and daryl i'm pleased to meet you if only by phone (laughs) Uh, and i hope i will meet you face to face one of these days likewise uh, in in detroit or new york or somewhere (laughs) else Um, uh, as we know uh, the fact that people share an experience does not necessarily mean they will share the same consciousness of the experience and i believe that mr woods is somebody who just from his description of activities since um, being released has uh, developed this great consciousness and understanding that he can share from the pulpit and in talking with people in high school and talking with people in organizations like the NAACP and and the ACLU. Um, And what our work is, I think, collectively, 
you, Stephen Henderson, you, Daryl Woods, me, Ruthie Gilmar, and others, is to help people come to an understanding, not only, of course, that going to prison is not a badge of honor, but also it is not the way that we solve social problems. Mm. And the opportunities that youth in Detroit or youth in California's Central Valley or youth anywhere in the United States, in Flint, Michigan, here in Manhattan where I live, their opportunities will be determined by whether they can live in safe housing, whether they go to schools that really, really encourage them to think and develop intellectually and aesthetically as well as morally, uh, whether or not they can drink clean water and breathe good air. Those are the most crucial things for youth uh, that I can see in my years of working with young people all over the place. I am a professor. That's not all that I do. <laughs> uh, as always, again, the number on the phone is 313-577-1019. Uh, let's get to some of the calls here. Let's go to Jimmy in Birmingham. Jimmy. Welcome to Detroit today. Hey guys, great show. Um, so I've got uh, I have a legacy, a family legacy of of my grandfather. Uh, he actually um, did volunteered and did prison ministry for over fifty years. He mm. would just simply take up his time to go visit those who were incarcerated uh, to just love on them. And and so I have I feel like I I perked up as soon as I heard about this uh, subject. So I guess one point I would make is. Perhaps instead of um, framing the conversation around, uh, you know, eliminating prisons, if you will, maybe the conversation could go further if it was couched with this idea that what happens in prison should be the subject of conversation, hmm. right? Maybe it's not about a complete overhaul of a system that's been, you know, the way it is for so long, but perhaps it's a very hard look at are we getting what we want out of the prison system today? And if not, maybe maybe it starts to change in in terms of what's happening within the system today. Yeah, yeah. Jimmy, I, that's a great that's a really great point, um, uh, Doctor Gilmore. I mean, I think there is sort of a natural tension between the idea of something as extreme as, extreme as abolition, uh, and then the need, of course, of course, the very real need to talk about. The system that we have uh, and and how it works. Uh, the ACLU uh, of Michigan uh, recently filed suit, for instance, uh, against the 36th District Court here in Detroit, saying that its system of cash bail uh, is unconstitutional uh, as a way of trying to get people, uh, you know, especially pretrial folks from uh, from having to spend a lot of time in in jail. Of course, there are all kinds of movements around the country and legislation in many states uh, thinking about the way we deal with prisons as they are. Are those are those uh, competitors to this idea of abolition or are they sort of, um, I guess, uh, steps along the way to the idea of abolition? That's a great question. And thanks for calling in, Jimmy, and for sharing your family's story. Um, they can be steps toward abolition depending on how they're framed. What do I mean by how they're framed? I mean, when a jurisdiction uh, legislatively reviews the requirements of cash bail, if they say cash bail 
uh, has a negative impact on all kinds of people, especially around pretrial detention, and should be eliminated uh, in some systematic way. That's one thing. It's another thing to say, we will eliminate cash bail for a small subset of people who otherwise would be held under pretrial detention and make it impossible for the cash bail to be eliminated for entire other classes of people being held. That's the difference between thinking as an abolitionist and thinking as a reform that will only strengthen and extend the system. So we can look inside at things that people have done, and I'm sure that Mr. Woods can speak very eloquently to this, but let me give you quickly two examples from California. Mm-hmm. Um, in California in the early 2000s, uh, there was a move on the part of very well-meaning people who wanted to have the Department of Corrections build new prisons for people in prisons for women because the old prisons, which were not old in years, but already existing, um, were alleged to be in, uh, incompatible with the needs of women. Right? So they proposed to build new prisons. People in the prison said, wait a second, don't do this in our name. What we want is a clear path to how we can get out and stay out. We don't want new buildings. So that's the difference between a reform that the prisoners call for, saying we want to find a way to get out, and a reform that some well-meaning people for the system call for, saying let's just build new prisons, extend the size of the system and the scope of the system. Hmm. So the reason we say abolition is is in order to emphasize we have to think about every single aspect of the pathway in and the pathway out, and all of the communities surrounding those pathways in order to make the kind of change we need. Uh, okay, we're going to take another quick break, and when we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Daryl Woods and Dr. Ruth Wilson-Gilmore, and we'll get to more of your calls. Philip in Detroit, Kay in Farmington Hills, Ray in Ypsilanti, hang on. We will get to you next. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've tuned in. My guests are Daryl Woods, a guy I've known for a while who spent 29 years in prison for aiding and abetting a homicide before Governor Rick Snyder commuted his sentence late last year. We also have Dr. Ruth Wilson-Gilmore. She's an earth and environmental sciences professor at the Graduate Center at City University of New York. She spent three decades advocating for prison abolition and has helped transform how people think about criminal justice. Uh, We want to hear from you, too. What do you think about the idea of getting rid of prisons and maybe coming up with another way to respond to crimes? Would that keep us safer and do better by the people who commit crimes, almost all of whom will at some point be asked to rejoin society? Uh, As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Or you can go to uh, Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll get to you that way as well. Let's go to Kay in Farmington Hills. Kay, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much. Yeah. Good morning. Hi. 
I, I wanted to, to say to Daryl, I am so very proud of him and happy for him. Um, and I wanted to ask him as well, as I think Dr. Gilmore, what can community individuals or even people who have uh, family members who are still incarcerated in heavily from heavily impacted communities such as Detroit, what can ordinary citizens and family members do to more significantly impact the 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 main issue, what would hmm. be the one thing that people could or should think about doing? Hmm. Daryl, I'll start with you. I think that they should uh, align themselves up with organizations uh, like the NAACP, as well as the ACLU Smart Justice Campaign, align themselves up with Chance for Life and other organizations that's doing the work uh, to be able to not only just reform the system, but to be able to help uh, giving a helping hand to those who are incarcerated. When I was incarcerated, I taught classes uh, every day almost, and I mentored guys. Uh, you need more mentors. You need more volunteers. You need more boots on the ground, if you would, uh, because uh, in order for us to be able to make a powerful change, then we need to be a part of that uh, conversation, and we need to be thoroughly engage in the process. So the Smart Justice Campaign needs you. The uh, NAACP Detroit branch needs you. Uh, uh, the uh, Chance for Life organization needs you to be able to help your loved ones that are incarcerated. And so we need you at the table. That's one of the main things I would say. Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Gilmore? Um, I can only echo what uh, Daryl Woods just said. Uh, organizations that are already doing the work need you. And also, importantly, if you're a member of an organization, whether it's faith community, uh, mutual aid society, what, what have you, be sure to raise this issue in your community and bring the organizations that are doing the work together with your already existing organization, because Absolutely. that's how we build the kind of community strength we need to make the changes we need. Mm -hmm. I want to be a part of that conversation in terms of unifying some of the resources. Uh, one finger by itself can do little harm, but all the fingers together can strike a mighty blow. That's what Big Mama said in the movie Soul Food, <laughs> and it's true today. And we need to put our fingers together to strike a mighty blow against uh, all of the injustice that we see, against all of the apathy because we really need to get charged up on this issue. Michigan is spending $2 billion in its correctional facilities. Every year. Every year. Uh, our children are suffering in these schools. The roads are terrible. Uh, we can use that $2 billion in other places. So there are some aspects of the system that we can begin to abolish today. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Gilmore, we're, we're going to run out of time in about five minutes, but I really did want to give you a chance to talk about how other countries are approaching this question. There are some examples for us around the globe about how to do better. Well, there certainly are examples from around the globe. Um, the New York Times story, which I do recommend to people mm -hmm. because it gives a good overview of the work and thinking that we're discussing today. Um, there are, for example, there are many places where um, life sentences are 
so rare as to con- uh, comprise perhaps a handful, if that many, of people who are locked up. Um, there are many places that have decriminalized uh, certain kinds of um, uh, things that remain crimes in the United States. Uh, there are places that provide social uh, counseling, social welfare, social goods, instead of waiting for somebody to, quote-unquote, mess up and then devise a stern punishment to them. So what I'm trying to say here is that abolition is a theory of change. Mm -hmm. It's not a, like, bulldozer. Rather, it's a theory of how we think about what we do. What is our guide to action? And as Daryl Woods was just saying, we do it by... Uh, going after, as one hand, all of these different aspects of social and community and political life that people are suffering under now. Um, The ACLU Smart Justice Campaign, I hope, will continue on a path of non-exclusionary reform. Mm -hmm. And then places like Wayne State, which I understand is the host of this show, is one that is centrally important to the well-being and development of young people and older people there in Detroit and greater Michigan. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when, you, when you talk to people, Dr. Gilmore, about these other examples, about this approach to criminal justice, do you, do you find that uh, you, you're getting receptive audiences in important places? I am getting more receptive audiences than I used to get, <laughs> yeah. and, that's, and that's a fact. Right. Um, I used to put on suits and go testify before legislators, and they used to roll their eyes or check their cell phones, <laughs> and now they actually listen. Um, but I, I actually put way more energy these days into talking with people like the people that my now new friend Daryl Woods is talking with and talking about, which is to say, without an insurgence from the community, from the grassroots, whether it's formerly incarcerated people like Daryl Woods or Susan Burton or Dorsey Nunn of All Us or None and others, or young people organizing themselves in high schools and junior high schools, as is I tell a story about in the New York Times story, then we're not going to get change because legislators are not going to make the kinds of moves we need. They are, by nature, whatever their politics, conservative. Their job is to get themselves reelected or to keep their appointed office. So what we have to do is bring the pressure and persuasion to them that they need to do what we need. Okay, Dr. Ruth Wilson-Gilmore, it was really great to have you here with us on Detroit today. Thanks for joining us. And Daryl Woods, it is really great to sit here in the studio across from you uh, after 29 years of you being in prison. Thanks very much for being here on the show. Thank you, Steve. That's going to do it for me today. I will be back tomorrow, and I hope you will, too. We're going to talk about medical ethics and all of these advancements that raise new ethical questions This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.